Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Future of Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Hoffman. On this episode, I am joined by Gally Cooks. Gally is the founding president and CEO of Leading Edge, an organization formed to influence, inspire, and enable dramatic change in attracting, developing, and retaining top talent for Jewish organizations. Enjoy my conversation with Gally Cooks. Gally, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really looking forward to this to this conversation with you for for the last several weeks since you've scheduled it. Please start by telling us who you are, what's your background, where you're from. I know you mentioned to me just before we hit the record button that you used to work on peace in the Middle East and in my neck of the woods. Yeah. Give us give us the background. Yeah, thanks, Josh. And thanks for this opportunity. I love these types of conversations where we kind of like take off the limits of what's possible and really think big. So my story, I think it's pretty, uh, pretty well, interesting to me and maybe, maybe typical. I grew up uh, some in Israel, I was born in Israel and uh, grew up in Israel. And then when I was seven, we made Yerida. We were one of those people, Josh, one of those people who actually uh, moved to the States. And so for the longest time, and I would say really as part of my, uh, part of my identity, I have felt very other. Like I feel very Israeli with Americans and very American with Israelis. And we moved to Minneapolis, Minnesota, of all places, Josh, where a brown, curly-haired Jewish person is not necessarily the norm. This is like the world of Nordic, you know, tall, blonde people. And so I felt very, very other, very, very other, and uh, just paid a lot of attention to how people form connection, how people communicate, how people like really get into conflict whether it was like, you know, at the lunch table with like two classmates or like, you know, my family had some feuds in them. And I was like, what are we doing? I don't understand this. Can we just like break bread, just like calm ourselves? And so that was sort of like, you know, like in the background, in the same time, there was really this like chitzi chitzi kind of like dual reality. All my family is in Israel, only the immediate family is in Minneapolis. We would spend summers there. There were a lot of like different decision points in my life where I was like, you know, do I go back? Do I try to, you know, somehow have both feet in one place? And there were, there were several, I would say, you know, really inflection points in my life. One was deciding not to go to the army at 18. Uh, that was a big, big decision and basically came down to, at the time, there were not a lot of opportunities for women who wanted to do important work in the army, or at least that was my perception. And, and so my father at the time was like, you know what, go to school, go to university, and then serve the state of Israel with your mind. And that's what I did. Went to University of Wisconsin-Madison, great time, great school, amazing, you know, school of life kind of stuff. Hebrew U, uh, spent there my junior year, also like memories for a lifetime, incredibly formative. And then upon graduating, went to work uh, as a speechwriter and event coordinator for the Israeli ambassador to the United States in, um, in Washington, D.C. And it was right around the time of like, you know, Bush, Clinton, or Clinton Bush, I should say, a lot of transition times. It was um, uh, right on the eve of September 11th, and the world really just like completely shifted. And my goal, like we talked about in, in, uh, in our, pre, our pre-chat, was in the same way that I had observed around me, you know, all these people just like not getting along. I was like, can we just solve this Middle East peace process already? I think I got the answer. 
said my youthful hubristic you know self and then as soon as you you know get into it you a find out that the people who are working on this problem are a lot smarter than you give them credit and that's usually the case no matter where you are and the second was, you know, this is a conflict steeped in history. It was like, it was well, well, well over my pay grade. And it was very clear, especially after September 11th and really like the second intifada, you know, a year before that this was a thing, you know, this was a conflict that would just heat up, you know, there would, would wane and wax and wane with, uh, with our years. And I remember reading, um, I think it was one of Bibi Netanyahu's early books where he basically said, you know, economic progress will lead to peace. I mean, really, it's, it's you know, if I want my children to grow up and what have you, and that's going to disincentivize me from, you know, doing violence or whatever else. And that was sort of an interesting engine for me. I was really, really, um, that always kind of swirled in the back of my mind. The other thing that I learned in my tour of duty at the embassy, which literally was two years, was one, writing speeches is super hard. And that's not like, you know, it's not like writing paper. So I was like very good at writing paragraph long, you know, sentences and ended up, you know, being relegated to trying to figure out jokes and, you know, digging up golden ear quotes. I mean, that was basically like the time, um, th those two years. That was, that was one thing. The other is that I'm not a political animal. Like there are certain people who, um, you know, just like sports fanatics, they love politics. It's like, get me in there, coach, you know? And I was like, this is does not feel safe. Like it just, it was too complicated for me. And I was like, you know what? I think I need a different kind of stream. The third thing that I learned was that people with money have tremendous access to people who shape our policy. I saw that at the Embassy of Israel. Then later I worked at APAC for a year. The people who are being invited to a lot of these VIP events with a bunch of these, you know, members of Congress, member of the diplomatic corps, members of the media, you know, the people who are really on the hierarchy of impact are the ones that are shaping our society, at least with the power in a very, you know, top-down kind of manner. These folks were incredibly wealthy and had tremendous access because they, you know, contributed to political campaigns or, you know, were able to shape the world in, in whatever way possible. And that to me was nuts. I was like, wait, the world is not a meritocracy, Josh? Holy crap, you know? And, and look, a lot of times your first or second job out of school, you kind of like learn how the world works. And there is sort of this like fall from grace of like, wait, I thought if I worked hard or if whatever, you know, things would sort of like line up and you're like, no, you know what? All of a sudden you're playing 10 dimensions of chess. It's not just like two dimensions. So welcome and good luck, you know? Um, but that was really, it was incredibly formative for me. And that, that third piece of just like, who are these wealthy people who are like trying to use their private capital, usually channeled through nonprofit means for public good. So it's really the public or the private nonprofit and private kind of value chain. I was like, who are these people? And they're philanthropists, they're donors who were getting more and more powerful because, you know, private wealth was growing and there was also a, sort of a democratization of information. It wasn't just, you know, a bunch of people going into some back room. All of a sudden it was the internet and you can figure out where money is going to and you can channel it better. And, and I was like, oh my God, I want to go there. I want to go there. Who are these people? Can I somehow bend the trajectory of these person, of these people's thoughts so that they're writing the check somewhere where potentially I could influence? I mean, it's, it's really, it was a really bad point. So I mentioned, I, I spent some time at APAC, which I'm very grateful for because it is still the best run organization that I've ever run, that I've ever um, had a chance to work at. Incredibly focused, incredibly high caliber people, 
um, and a very, very difficult time for me personally, to tell you the truth, um, as you know, the politics didn't necessarily align with my own personal views, et cetera, et cetera, but a very good lesson therein uh, as well. And, um, and then went to work for a chain of philanthropists. So first it was Newton Becker, who came up with a CPA review. It's like a Kaplan for the CPA exam, who's a teacher, love teachers, you know? He asked, he asked incredibly great questions and modeled for me the kind of due diligence that you need in order to figure out, you know, is a leader gonna be able to make good on their vision and what's the goal and that type of stuff. Then went to work for Harold Grinspoon and started the PJ Library which was, I thought, one of the most beautiful things ever. And I think Harold Grinspoon is one of the most innovative, uh, certainly colorful and fun uh, philanthropists out there. Um, and, uh, and once we got that to a solid alpha, um, went and worked for my third philanthropist, which was Stanley Kaplan, the actual Kaplan test prep guy. Um, and there was really, it was like, I, what I learned was there really was a way to suss out who are the leaders who are going to make good on their vision, number one. Number two, I learned that I really wanted to follow them into battle. Like some of these, and I didn't want to just write them a check. I was like, all right, let's do it, you know? And the third was that a lot of money was channeled toward really stale, uh, bureaucratic, you know, type of risk-averse institutions that was just chaval. You know, it was like, really, we're just kind of like maintenance mode here. It's not even like, I just don't understand. So with all that, um, I went to business school because I was like, all right, I, I understand that these philanthropists are speaking a different language and they're thinking in different ways. And I want to learn what the hell that is, because they're asking me things. I mean, I remember when we started the, the PJ library, Harold was like, what's the price point on this book? And I was like, is that the same as price? I don't know. I mean, what is that? Right. And it is the same as price, but it's like, you know. Um, there are all these words that I was like, I really need another, you know, arrow in my quiver. So I went to business school um, and then I was like, tech, tech, technology is the thing that's going to solve social problems. It's not philanthropists. It's that. Okay. Went to work at an ed tech startup, which was, had a very bold vision of democratizing the tutoring business basically it was like okay a tutor is going to enable a kid to improve by letter grade at minimum but these are only open to kids who can pay so what happened if we were just to open that up to the other 80 percent and so we built an automated tutoring system it was right when the mathematical comic core curriculum was coming out so everything was you know math is like either try or not um, and it was a very, very smart system. It also was incredibly challenging because we had a lot of engineers who loved the tech and hated people. And there was no empathy for the user at all. And, you know, we were talking about sixth grade students who were probably at third grade level, you know, learning or whatever. And it became very clear to me that there was this gap between how we're creating some of these products and how they're actually being used. And, and obviously that was going to be a defining characteristic of, of successful companies. And the other thing that I just could not handle, and this is very much the Israeli me, I have a very, very high like bullshit meter. And I was sold that we were like democratizing, we were solving the math problem. And, you know, it was, we were making the world a better place. And the fact of the matter is, is that it was very value driven. It was very, pro, you know, bottom line driven. And we had to make decisions that would enable us to, you know, get more money. Totally a reality. Awesome for some people. I was like, you know what, this isn't for me. I'm not working 85 hours a week so that I can once again sell the people who have access to this, the 20% who have access to this more, 
and leave the other 80% behind because it's too hard to reach them. And it really is hard. And I was like, you know what? The nonprofit sector is my home. And I'm, proudly, I'm going to proclaim that. None of this like, you know, like inferiority complex drives me crazy that we have that in the nonprofit sector. And so made my way back at the time. I, this is a very long story. I'm very sorry, Josh, like all over the place. Um, please. No, feel, I'm, feel I'm captivated. Keep going. This is okay. amazing. Okay. So I read a report that um, to me was very obvious, but also was very, um, uh, it was really exciting to see. It was a report by the Bridgespan Group, which is a nonprofit consulting firm spun out of uh, Bain that said that the Jewish nonprofit sector was going to go through a massive leadership transition. So the CEOs were going to be retiring, like the majority, and that the Jewish community was not prepared. And even more so, people didn't want these jobs. And the funders who commissioned this report were like, oh my God, if we don't know who's captain of the ship, how are we going to know who to hold accountable for the goals and the other types of priorities that we know that need to be carried out by some of these institutions? And so this was what was called the Pipelines Alliance Report, something like that. And that really gave rise to what became Leading Edge. It was this problem that like, you know, and, and I say problem because I saw it as an opportunity. I mean, it was, it was seen as like this crisis. Oh my God, there's a leadership cliff. And I was like, are you kidding? This is amazing. This is an opportunity for us to actually, you know, have the wind at our sails and go into the 21st century with, you know, a fresh pitching arm and um, cast my hat in the ring for this role and um, was like 100% sure I wouldn't get it because I'm not, you know, a leadership development expert. I'm just good at starting things and, um, and did. And it's uh, what started as a donor collaborative. I mean, really, you know, about 10, funders who recognized that their biggest grantees and their biggest investments were going to go through a leadership change. That is a huge exposure to have. And they wanted to hedge that. And that's Leading Edge. Wow, that's amazing. Before we get into Leading Edge, I want to pick apart some of the things that you called out. You, you, you called out a lot of things, and I don't think we can get to all of them. <laughs> I am very tempted to, to ask for your what you thought were the solutions to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, hmm. but I'm going to pass on that one for, for the sake of brevity and being respectful Thank of your you. time and yes. a listener's time. Uh, I want to go to uh, the thing you mentioned about doing due diligence to understand if leaders can follow through on their vision. Can mm-hmm. you unpack that for us? What does that mean? What's that process? How, how do you go about that? Yeah, what it ended up being was very much like what I learned in business school was a very classic kind of venture capital due diligence process. So you look at the leader and you look at their background and you look at their experience and you also look at some of their initiative. Like it doesn't matter if they've gone to Stanford and I don't know, started 14 companies, you can be an 18 year old with a vision and have the humility to surround yourself with a kitchen cabinet of advisors and maybe a co-founder who's amazing. and, And therefore that's, that's going to be a harbinger of at least, you know, more, more additional, um, you know, positive steps. So it was really looking at like the entire portfolio of an organization um, and not over, like not overlooking certain things that are just basic hygiene, like financials. Like what I found was that there are, there were at least at the time, I think foundations now are a lot more professionalized actually for 
for you know due diligence purposes and that there is a little bit more of a um, a science to it even though it's somewhat of an art as well but there was you know people didn't look and didn't even ask for audited financials the auditors also sometimes the, their audit letters were like what this is confounding their financials you could just tell were cooked in a way that um was meant for the proposal and once you started asking questions you'd get more information that was helpful in getting the information that was actually important so it's it's really about looking at the 360 of an organization and and ultimately it's about sussing out the leadership i should say it's not just about the singular leader like we really had a a um a philosophy of like a molecule that's like you know carrying the work forward especially in a world that's like so much more complicated and you can't be a specialist in everything um so it was looking at the leader looking at the financials looking at the team looking at the plan and like the robustness of the plan looking at some of like the early track record of like different partnerships um and then the actual program you know like are they and how they're measuring that success i mean it's as easy and as hard as that so the reason i asked that is because you know, I'm I'm a big critic of the lack of Jewish leadership that we have in, in the Jewish world, the Jewish ecosystem, the Jewish industry. Um, you know, it depends how you define leadership, right? I mean, my my high level definition is leadership is not a position, it's an action, and it's getting a bunch of other people to willingly and excitingly follow in, in your footsteps uh, as, as the leader. Um, when I say that there is a complete and utter lack of leadership in the Jewish world, you say what? I say I disagree with that. I disagree with that. I think the first we have to look at like the definition of leadership. So to have a bunch of followers, is it is it to have, you know, you, you probably have influence, but is it leadership? Is it exercising leadership? I'm not so sure sometimes, you know, I'm not so sure. I look at, especially in this age of social media where you can have a million, you know, followers and, um, and you can certainly influence behavior, uh, but is that leadership? Is that is that? I don't know. I think there's a there's an no, interesting for the, question. For the sake it. for the sake of this conversation, when I when I meant that you know having followers, I don't mean social media followers or political followers or things of that nature. I mean somebody in an organization, a CEO or a you know C level executive that not only has the vision, but has the work ethic and has the bravado and mm -hmm. has the personality and the charisma that every single person in that organization, or at least the people that fall under their jurisdiction, wake up every day, go to work virtually or in person, and are literally giving 150% or 180% or 5,000% of their capability within reason even though they're not being asked to do that, they're doing that because that leader has instilled in them that fire and that passion. That's what I'm saying is missing mm -hmm. in the Jewish world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's an interesting, I would say it's an interesting argument. I think that there are a lot, look, our, our survey, our employee experience survey, which you poured over and I appreciate that, does show that we in the Jewish community are one of the, the pieces of good news, I should say, are well above the uh, par, if you will, when it comes to people feeling proud of their organization, understanding how their role contributes to the overarching vision of, of an organization. There, there is that fire. I mean, in many ways, we attract the people who want, who need that fire, who need that purpose, who want to work on purpose every day. Whether it's the leaders who are 
shaping that. I do think we have some some leaders. I also think it's a lot more complicated in in our system because the nonprofit business model is one that is sort of a twin engine. You've got your boards and funders, like so what we call lay, even though I hate that term, but the volunteer leadership and the financial kind of, you know, power. And then you've got the professionals who are trying to actually make the work happen. And that's a very challenging structure. I mean, in many ways, I mean, think about it. It's kind of like the amateurs are telling the professionals what to do. And that's that's not necessarily going to create the kind of environment where you can have an outspoken leader who can speak unfettered without you know the consequence. So look, I, I mean, I sound like an apologist. I do think that there is, um, I do think that we have some really inspiring people. I think the people who are attracted to the nonprofit sector generally subsume their ego because they, they know it's like the we, not the I, to, to use some of the ways in which you look at the dichotomy in your, dichotomy in your book. And, and that means that maybe we do that too much, you know, like there is, there is that aspect of things. Uh, because it is a team sport. I mean, we're working on, you know, very, very complicated social problems in many ways and, and emotional problems and, and spiritual problems. Um, but I look at certain people who are incredibly, um, whether it's certain rabbis that we have or certain emergent community, you know, folk who are just kind of blazing a trail in ways that are, feels very fresh. And, and then, you know, some, some of the more, you know, technocratic, if you will, types of folks, um, types of folks as well. Yeah, it's it's a complicated question. Right. So you're say. saying there's nuance and and that there's more yeah. gray than black and white, which I can appreciate. You know, you made a comment also about the inferiority of the nonprofit sector. And I'm curious mm -hmm. to know, you know, why you believe that to be true and maybe some of the prescriptions for how we can balance out the superiority and the inferiority of the for-profit and nonprofit worlds. Yeah. Yeah, I think some of it is about the nuance. So the nonprofit sector doesn't have a clear bottom line. It's not like I can measure you. I mean, unless you're like a development person, which is basically, you know, sales, I can say, okay, Josh, you were supposed to bring in 25K this quarter from funders. You only brought in 10, 20, you know, where's the delta of the five? In everything else that we do, you know, how do you measure impact? And we know that it's not just about the numbers. It's not just about the quantity. I mean, we can look at certain policies where you just chase the numbers and then all of a sudden, like the work is not as meaningful. So it's a lot more complicated than that. And I think what ends up happening is, you know, people, especially in this day and age when we don't have, I think the patience or the energy, or I don't know if the ability, certainly the attention for nuance, what do people look at? Quarterly earnings, right? The short-termism. And what do I say to folks that work in the nonprofit sector? I mean, it's, it's like, did you help this student again? You know, it's like the repeat customer, like it's almost like you have to, you have to translate in private sector terms because so much of our society is based on capitalism and, and I'm a fan, fan of capitalism, but capitalism is king. And so all of a sudden there is that hierarchy. I will say that there's also... The inferiority complex is one where, I mean, just look at the name nonprofit. I mean, dude, Lehman was a nonprofit in 20, in 2007. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that, I don't know, the Teach for America is a nonprofit. Like it's, it's uh, there is a movement to actually, you know, think about more of like social purpose or like for purpose kind of, kind of names. Um, 
I also think that there isn't, the nonprofit sector only recently has become much more professionalized. There were, it was. A, are you talking about in general or are you talking about specifically in the Jewish world or both? In general. Okay. No, no, in general. In general and, and certainly in the Jewish, in the, in the Jewish community. So that means that, you know, all of a sudden you do have MBAs and you do have, you know, lawyers and you do have, you know, masters in public policy or whatever else who are, who are working in our sector and are used to getting the kind of, you know, confidence and, and bandwidth and latitude to make certain decisions. And again, the nonprofit business model is one that is super, you know, just very, very challenging. I think the, the place, if you're looking for, for a good read, I think Nancy Lublin, who, um, who was the CEO of Do Something for a very long time. And I think that she was one of the founders, do you know her? She's one of the founders of um, the Crisis Text Hotline, uh, which is literally saving lives. She has this book called Zilch, which talks all about the nonprofit sector and how we just have this inferiority complex and it's total bullshit because we've got smart people kind of in a mess. We're in a nuance, we're not in the black and white and that's the world. And that's, that's the place where, um, yeah, there's a lot of opportunity, I think, to shape the narrative. I agree. And I want to, you know, you mentioned Teach for America. And I think that's a pinpoint example of what's really lacking also in the, in the Jewish world, right? I mean, let's put the leadership thing for, to, to the side for a second. You know, branding and marketing yep. is, is a real, you know, those are real things that do a lot of great things. If you have a, a, a subpar product or service or experience that you're providing, branding and marketing will just expose that. But mm -hmm. if you have a great product or a really good product or service or experience, but you have a subpar brand or the marketing of that product or service or experience is not up to the level of the product or service or experience itself, that's the gap that I'm seeing in the Jewish world. Because, you know, you don't have to answer this question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. What's the number one brand in the Jewish world? The number one brand? There is none. The, the, the answer is there the is Jewish none. World. I mean... And, and that's like, that's weird, right? Like when I was growing up, uh, you know, in the 90s wait, and early wait, But 2000s, what's the number one brand in the Christian world or the Muslim world? So, so hold on. So, so I don't, okay. so, so, so this is why I don't like the examples you gave, because I was going to give a different example because the okay. examples that yeah. you gave were religious examples. Yeah. And Judaism is not a religion, right? right. The great, right. the yeah. great Avram Infeld said, that the Jews have a religion, but Judaism is not a religion. Yep. And, I agree, and I agree with that. And I think it sounds like you do too. So if we agree that Judaism is not a religion, then the question is not what's the number one brand in the you know, uh, Christian, Christian or Catholic or, or Muslim world. The similarity that I see to the Jewish world, and a lot of Jews are not going to like this because of, of sort of the connotations that are about to go to this example, but I'm going to say it anyway, because it's, it's actually quite Aleph to Aleph. Okay. It's the African-American community, right? African-American culture, black culture started to take rise maybe in the eighties, certainly in the nineties. And then definitely today it's, you know, I mean, uh, I remember watching BET, right? Which was the, the black MTV as a kid. Um, and uh, you had brands like FUBU and Echo mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then like kind of Nike and like Jordan, but like you didn't have to be black to like be in that community or like to subscribe to that culture. And that was so what was so cool about it, right? Like, and, and now today, I mean, you look at the NFL, you look at the NBA, um, sure. 
you know, you even look at some of the soccer stars in Europe, you know, th these people are, you know, LeBron James or Allen Iverson back in the day, uh, uh, so on and so forth. I mean, this is like black culture is cool. And like people want parts of it. Some people want the fashion, some people want the music, some people want the movies and TV shows, some people want the slang, some people, that to me is what Judaism is, right? Like it's, it's a different culture. It's not the same culture as black culture. It might not be music and, and sports, for example, but, mm -hmm. but, you know, Judaism has those unique cultural touch points that for us, it could be Shabbat, right? For us, it could be, uh, you know, give 10% of your income to charity. I mean, there's different sure. things that people can take uh, depending on who they are, what they are, if they're Jewish, if they're not Jewish, how Jewish they are, how religious they are, et cetera, et cetera. That to me is, is the, the, the example that I think the, the African-American communities did a great job of uh, building brands, right? That are synonymous with black culture. And then also wrapping themselves around existing brands like the NBA, for example, uh, or like Nike, where all of a sudden there's positive brand associations between the African-American culture and these uh, sort of parallel brands, even though they're not, you know, Nike's not a black brand but it sure as hell is wrapped around the African-American yeah, sure, community sure. and anyone who wants to, to subscribe to that. So, you know, that's, you, you know, you talk about how do we change the perception of, you know, working in the nonprofit community or the nonprofit mm -hmm. sector. To me, like, that's a huge part of it, right? Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I mean, in, in some way, we see it as the same shift as, you know, from a Jewish nonprofit sector perspective, let's call it 30 years ago. So a generation ago, if you said you were an entrepreneur, people were like, what? Oh, you're unemployed. You know, then Steve Jobs came and then Silicon Valley, you know, like then there's like this whole movement toward like, oh my God, you're an entrepreneur. What do you have? Like, what's your guy? You know, like, it means you're curious. It means you're smart. It means you're probably going to be wealthy. It means that you're risk-taking and like all these positive kind of connotations. Why can't that be for the nonprofit sector? I mean, especially at a time when, like, listen, the nonprofit sector, at least in the United States, we're the third largest employer in the United States. Like, as more and more, you know, if, if government is going to become smaller and, you know, we kind of, like, expand, contract, whatever, who's filling some of these needs? Nonprofits, whether it's arts and culture, whether it's health and human services, whether it's education, whether it's, you know, whatever else. And that, that to me is, like, you know, like, our goal, like, I, you know, I sometimes tell my team, I'm like, listen, we are working toward a world where someone's at a Shabbat dinner and they're like, Josh, what do you do? And you're like, I work for the ADL. And you're like, what? Oh my God. Right. The eyebrows go up and you're like, holy crap. Josh is smart. He's working with amazing people. He's getting better at 1% by every day. Right. I think that's imminently solvable. I think that, especially in this time when like, listen, Gen Z and, and millennials, you know, we talked a little bit about this in our, our pre-conversation. Like there are times in your life when you're going to have to choose meaning over money. And that's not necessarily like, you know, the fork in the road that you'll forever be on. And more and more millennials and Gen Z are like, you know what? I kind of want me to care. Like, I, I don't, I don't want to, I know that work is a certain, you know, aspect of my identity. I want it to align with my values. I want it to, you know, make the world a better place in a real way. And, and that's where I feel like we have the best, you know, value proposition for people. You know, it's interesting. Um, so, so tell me a little bit more about your you know, how you feel that, that the nonprofit world can become uh, sexier, if you will, for, for both employees, but also mm -hmm. for the end consumer, right? Because at, totally. at the end of the day, the, the, the nonprofit space serves some sort of consumer segment. 
How do yeah. you see that happening in, in your view? Yeah, I think it starts with, you know, there's a system that's that's kind of calcified, if you will. And what are some of the movements and how does the clay become a little soft? It's when there are leadership transitions. Like that's that's really when you have an opportunity to completely shift an organization or to completely, you know, to ask yourself, and I, I say yourself, it's usually the board who does this or some sort of like senior professional leadership in partnership with the board, you know, to ask yourself, like, is the work that we're doing here, like, is it helping? Should we continue doing it? Maybe there's another organization that's better positioned to do it. You know, there's there's some of these conversations. And that's really what we're honestly encouraging many, encouraging many organizations to do, especially when you know a long time, you know, long-serving leader is about to go. And and there's there's no, you know, hiring a, a clone of this person. So you got to think of like, okay, what's the next chapter? How are we building from strength to strength? So that's the first, I think that's the first opportunity is really thinking about that. And then, you know, we are working for an environment where there's sort of this like virtuous cycle. And you talk a little bit about this in your book as well of like, you know, or the flywheel, you know, so you've got an amazing leader who's coming in and he's, and he's or she or they um, are thinking about the ecosystem and the product and the product market fit and the ways in which they're truly making the world a better place. And that means change and then managing that change. And in some ways it means, you know, what we see a lot of the time is new leadership can come in. Um, a third of employees are going to be, you know, leaving or let go or what have you. We saw a lot of that during the pandemic, you know, different opportunities to pivot um, that were quite exciting and also super uncomfortable. So I think it's a variety of things. Like, look, we look at it we're an enterprise sort of organization. So we work B2B, we work with the leadership of organizations, whether that's volunteer leadership and donors or the professionals at a variety of levels, but mostly senior, mostly senior, knowing that the world is not meritocratic necessarily. And what we see is an opportunity in thinking about opportunities for when there could be major shifts. So COVID was certainly one of them as many organizations had to out of necessity, right? Um, uh, innovation is, is the mother or invention is the mother, mother of necessity or necessity is mother of invention. Um, so, so we see different kind of levers of change that could be sort of internal to the system that can force the kind of change in a, in a positive way. And then also like outside actors. I mean, look, you're right that our, our community is shifting in a variety of ways from a demographics perspective and from, you know, you cite in your book of a different attitudinal sort of kind of frightening types of uh, uh, realities that next generation and multiple generations in one family have as it relates to Judaism, as it relates to Israel. And that is going to force, that's a forcing function that we think is super uncomfortable and also like bring it, you know, like that's, that's those are the kinds of forces um, and what we tell leaders and they know themselves, like no leader is on maintenance mode right now or ever, but like no leaders on maintenance mode. Like we're all trying to think about how are we going to improve? How are we going to grow? How are we going to pivot? How are we going to, you know, meet the need of the moment? And these moments have been um, almost biblical. Um, there's no playbook. Tell me more about Leading Edge. Uh, I'd like to know, you know, some of the things that you, I know you have several programs. You put out yeah. a survey every year, which we'll talk about in a second as well. But tell me more about Leading Edge. It, it's really, I think, one of the, the the bright spots in the Jewish world right now. No, I appreciate you saying that. You know, we, we're trying. We're trying to stay honest. So it was really born out of the the problem that I that I mentioned, which was, you know, three quarters at very minimum of our leaders were going to turn over. 
And so if you think of like, you know, Abe Foxman, or if you think of, you know, Barry Schrag, or if you think of, you know, some of these people who are almost like on the Mount Rushmore of, you know, 20th century Judaism, you know, and how do you, how do you replace them? And what does that mean for the, the assets, human and financial and otherwise, and potential of these organizations? So that really caused us to ask certain questions around, well, what are the key levers here? Like, how can we actually create the kind of ecosystem where we're attracting the best talent to not only take over for these folks, but also to be these folks or to be a version of these folks in 20 years or whatever else. So the first thing, we really have three key streams of work that we think, okay, if we do these well, this is going to bend the trajectory. So one is workplace culture. And that's really where the data comes in. We want every organization to be a great place to work. We defined it. We use outside benchmarks to measure ourselves against what the hell a great place to work is. And, and that's where our employee experience survey really helps us understand, well, are we great places to work? Why aren't we? Where are we striving year over year? And this is a dynamic kind of problem and opportunity. I mean, it's sort of like staying in shape. You gotta keep at it, keep at it, keep at it. So that's the first workplace culture. The second is really supporting executives. And it started with, um, new CEOs, like understanding that a new CEO coming in, taking over for someone who's been there for 25 years, that person's going to need some runway in order to figure out how to take off. And they're going to be drinking from the fire hose for a very long, like for a very long time. And they need some support. And by support, we think they need some peers. They maybe need a coach. They need some, some master classes to maybe sharpen some of the, uh, the tools in their, um, in their quiver. So that's number two. And number three is what we call, uh, what we call the, I should say, the lay professional partnership. It's, it's really, if you look at the, the nonprofit sector just as a business model, it is propelled by a twin engine, professionals and volunteer leaders. And so that partnership, and think about it as just a board, you know, your board of directors, really trying to optimize that par partnership. And that's, those are really the three, the three tracks that we're in. And what we've turned into is sort of like one place, like one part think tank, one part platform, one part laboratory, frankly. And it's really these three types of strands that we try to tug on and we try to learn from and we try to uh, support um, organizations and leaders through. I mentioned the the employee experience survey that you've been doing, I believe, since 2016. Something yeah, like right. 300 organizations, 35,000 employees that have participated right. in the survey. Um, I, I got my hands on the latest version from 2021, and I was first of all I was blown away at the at the depth and the context and the nuance that that is in this survey. I think, you know, it it really shows. Uh, for a lot of people, you know, they don't realize, I mean, just in the US, I think, or, or maybe North America alone, it's like 75,000 employees. Um, that's right. So I mean, that's like, you know, that's a like a, a relatively big high tech company today, right? That could be like a fortune 500, you know, level uh, of, of employment. Um, I'm curious to know, you know, there's, there's a lot in the survey, and I don't want to, you know, necessarily go into all of it for anyone who's interested, just basically Google leading edge employees experience survey. But in the, in the most recent version that you guys put out, what was yeah. one thing that you thought was going to be in that, in, in those findings that turned out either wasn't there or was there in a different form or fashion? Yeah, it's a good question. And I should mention the 2021 version was a little bit different than the previous ones because of COVID. I mean, there really is that, that Paul, if you will, uh, coloring in. 
So I can tell you the first year that we did this, one of the hypotheses that we went in with was the reason why we're not great places to work and are not attracting the best talent is because we don't pay. And what we saw from the beginning and now five years into it, and this year is gonna be our biggest service survey yet, was that's not true. The reason people leave their organizations is because they don't have confidence in their leadership because their managers don't give them the kind of feedback to improve every day. You know, it's a lot more nuanced than that. So that, that once again appeared this year or this past year. One of the things that we were very curious about is burnout. So how does that get played out in the Jewish nonprofit sector? And what we found this year that I was actually somewhat surprised by is that once again, there, one of the lowest scoring questions that we had and that you noted in your book is when asked with employees to what extent they agree or disagree with there are enough people to do the work, only like 37% of employees said, I strongly agree or agree. And I want to meet those 37%, by the way, Josh. I'm like, what, what is that? That was, um, that was disconcerting to us. We thought that that would be a little bit higher because we had heard and we had seen a lot of organizations go above and beyond to care for their employees, to be as malleable as possible because the world was what it was. And that was disappointing. At the same time, what we found was that employees did actually feel cared for and respected by and closer to their manager than ever before. So what I was expecting to see was uh, one of the reasons why we're not great places to work also is because internal communications at organizations is really horrible. You just don't have somebody, you know, like the CEO is always thinking about external stakeholders, like, dude, one of your stakeholders is your employees. Got to be thinking about that, right? And, and that's yet another burden for somebody who's, once again, there are not enough people to do the work. So what, what I thought was, oh my God, okay, it's March, 2020. People are dispersing to their home. All of a sudden I can't see Josh through my frosted glass window at, you know, wherever we work. And so he's gonna feel disconnected and I'm, as his manager is gonna feel disconnected. And what we found is actually the other way around. Managers were checking in multiple times a week with their folk and, you know, people felt a lot closer to the work. They were reading a lot of manifestos coming out from CEOs saying, you know, this is how we're in this moment going to deal with these next two weeks. This is how the PPP loans are going to be, you know, doing, you know, taking in that. This is how we unfortunately have to, you know, deal with school closures. There was almost like an over-communication that our leaders did, which is not the case that, which is like not status quo for our organizations. So there was, it's, it's checkered, you know, I would say, like, once again, we found out that money is not a differentiating, you know, I'm leaving or I'm not leaving kind of thing. We found that people are, like, really burning out in the same way that, you know, they have year over year. And at the same time, we found that people are a lot closer to their managers because we had to make the extra effort. It wasn't like, you know, there wasn't inertia. Again, it wasn't like, oh, the reflex of the Monday meeting, I'll see Josh there and I'll forget him for a month, you know, like. There wasn't that. It was like, oh my God, this is a new time. We are, it's on me to be able to connect with my coworkers in different ways. You know, I want to go back to this whole for-profit, non-profit thing, because it seems to me that the, the cards are stacked against the non-profit world, unless there's, you know, there are some non-profits. Uh, I think Charity Water comes to mind, which actually drives revenue. Uh, I think they have yeah, some kind of a subscription well. program and, and that's another, yeah, the well, another group. The well. yeah, the well, exactly. And, and that's another great example of 
of a true nonprofit brand, um, mm -hmm. right? Alongside the Teach for America, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, like, is it, I mean, in theory, you know, some organizations just have endowments till the end of time and have donors who are so uh, quote unquote invested that they'll just keep writing checks because God forbid this thing fails or God forbid this thing goes, becomes irrelevant. But like, it seems to me that the, the average nonprofit today, you know, is, is not either is not creating revenue or is not creating enough revenue, you know, to, to, to make it a, a serious source of, of, of income uh, and, and maybe doesn't have that, that backing, whether it's endowment or just blank check donors. And so as, you know, we see things, cost, cost of things are rising, whether it's employment, whether it's, you know, now you have to, you know, now you have to give your employees $100 a month so they can see a therapist or hire a personal trainer or, I mean, like, I'm, I'm really asking you, is it possible for the average nonprofit, Jewish or non-Jewish, at this point, it doesn't really matter, to, to compete with the tech companies and the... Uh, uh, you know, different organizations today, whether it's Fortune 500 or, uh, you know, consulting firms or uh, marketing and advertising agencies that clearly, uh, from my vantage point, I mean, living in Tel Aviv, being sort of one of the, the tech capitals of the world, it seems very, very hard for any nonprofit to compete on the employment standpoint. What do you say to that? I think that you're right to some extent. It's very difficult for nonprofits to invest in brand and storytelling in the way that private sector organizations do. And I would say mostly because it's expensive. Those expenses are seen as pejorative. Like for every dollar that I hire Josh Hoffman for to tell a story or to produce a video is one dollar that's not going to the student to enrich their like Jewish learning or to take them to the hotel to have, you know, what have you. So there's a real like scarcity mindset there, which is very, very difficult to manage as a, as a leader. You always think of trade-offs. So I would say like, you're right about that. I also feel like, and I felt this at the tech startup, the best thing that a nonprofit has going for it is that you know the intentions of the nonprofit is inherently to do good in the world. That will get you meetings with school districts, that will get you meetings with certain philanthropists who are open to potentially investing. It will open doors in ways that could be maximized even further. Look, I would, I would argue a lot of tech companies are not profitable. You know, like there, there are plenty of those as well. And, or never reach profitability for that matter, or don't for years, or, you know, like we know that three quarters of companies in general fail after a certain runway at, at that. I think it's more around the who we're targeting. Like there are certain people who would like to spend the majority of their waking hours at work, working on a problem that lights up their soul. And maybe they, get only 50% of the compensation that they would otherwise. Maybe that's okay for a certain life stage. And they are going to have, I think the, the thing for us is 
can we give them the kind of experience that's going to be enriching, even if it's not private sector, that will enable them to, I mean, listen, that, that was my experience at APAC. It was awesome. You were part of a SWAT team and you knew it. And you knew that you were there for a year or two or three, and then you're out, kind of like McKinsey. Only 1% actually move up the pyramid. That's, it's more, for me, it's more about a structural problem and opportunity. I mean, look, there, there are plenty of, Charity Water is a great example. I think Donors Choose is another one. Pencils of Promise is another one. Like there are different types of beasts where you can really see the power of brand. Look, I think One Table is a great example of that to tell you the truth. Like a certain, um, a certain polish and a certain point of view that is attractive. I, I think certain congregations, frankly, have that. I think of Labshul, you know, in, uh, in New York. And I think of, of some of the freshness they're in. So I think it really just depends what does success look like? Like if we're saying like, look, a nonprofit is never going to, uh, is never going to compete with the types of organizations that have much deeper pockets. They're just not, but I'm not sure if that's the game. You know what I mean? Like it's, there's a, there's a triple bottom line component. There's a, uh, there's so much nuance and listen, people hate that because they're like 50 shades of gray. And they're like, can you just give, tell me the answer? Is this working or not? And you're like, dude, it's not zeros and ones. I'm sorry, we're people. You know, you can't automate this crap. If you did, we would. And then like, we'd give it to the robots, you know? Yeah, a, a very long-winded way and a rambly way of saying like, look, it's, it's uh, I think it's more complicated. I think that there's a, um, you know, sometimes nonprofits use what you say as a cop-out. Well, we can't compete. So we'll just go for C-level talent, you know, or whatever. It's like, come on now, come on, we can. We can do better. And we do. You are a rock star. I really enjoy this conversation. Thank you so much for doing this and, uh, and good luck.